Hello, and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I am Andy Ori, and alongside me is my co-host, Pippa Sturt. Hi, Andy. Hey, and today we are joined by Akshat Hrati. How are you doing, Akshat? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Uh, I'm all right, I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. So Akshat is a senior reporter for climate at Bloomberg News and is also an author who has released his first book, Climate Capitalism, Winning the Global Race to Zero Emissions. Very good. Lovely book that it is. So Akshat, we always start with this. What's keeping Akshat up at night? Usually it's when a big story is coming out because I'm worried about getting something wrong. And once the piece is out and the fact is wrong, you have to get a correction. It's such an embarrassment. Um, and so that usually keeps me up at night. What's the, what's the process for fact-checking? How does it work? Depends on the story. It typically, if it's I'm the only author, then it's all on me. And I have to make sure it's not a fun fact. place to be. No. And, you know, I sometimes I'm once I'm done with a piece, I'm like, wait a second, it's only a thousand words and there are a hundred facts in there. How does anybody write every day and not make mistakes all the time? I think you'll find we do. It just doesn't <laughs> matter so much. But I guess writing about this subject is that there's a lot more facts. I mean, yes. I mean, there's the science, there's technology, there's policy, there's numbers, there's projections, there's modeling. So yes, climate is a fun beat, um, complicated beat. And I mean, is the the climate information is for investors who are just looking at uh, farming yields or hugely? Is it a million things? What 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 do the people use the climate information for? So. Right, right now, it's mostly for sort of macro trends to understand where to invest, to understand what kind of risks are coming to their own business if you're a big company. If you have a weather event that's going to cause your business to not be able to operate, you're going to have a loss in that region. You have a factory on a very low promontory. Yeah. On the, on it's the not just shore. that. I mean, a very good example is Unilever, for example, would make money selling ice cream. There was a massive heat wave two years ago in North America, mostly in, in Canada, mm-hmm. where temperatures reached 50 degrees Celsius during summer. You'd think that would be great for ice cream. People would want more ice cream. Mm. But the heat waves were so bad that people wouldn't leave their homes. There were wildfires that were started because of the heat. And ice cream sales dipped massively. And there was no point in them buying the ice cream at the supermarket because by the time they got it home, it, it just melted anyway. over the back of the car. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So business risk now and climate risk have intertwined and it's very real for businesses. And is that what the book's about or what's the book about? The book is about this big looming thing that we think is going to eat us all and we're doing nothing about it. And I show that's not true. We have started doing things about it around the world at scale. We're just not doing them fast enough. And I'm hoping... Through the success stories in the book, people learn lessons and apply them in other places and we get on track. So it's it's kind of, you can do it because these people are already doing it and here's That's how. right, that's right. And it's not easy, but we're not, not doing it because it's not easy. We're not doing it because we feel we cannot do something about it. That's not true. And you particularly wanted to take an optimistic slant because it is one of those subjects, I guess, that can be quite negative all the time and puts everyone off and... It's true, but also as a journalist, uh, a service that journalists provide, they provide other services, but one service journalists provide is to point to problems and get other people to solve those problems because that's what we can do best. Writing a book is a different experience. You get to take some story, work on it Mm. for years, 
put it out. Spend a I, long time Long on time, it. right? Yeah. I finished the book last year. So people are reading something that I finished, did not touch very much over a year ago. So the stories have to be worthy of reading even after. And so I wanted to try and tell the story of solutions, to tell the story of success rather than problems. It's not to say I'm shying away from the problems. They are in there. I acknowledge them and I tell you all the challenges. But at the end of it, how do you overcome them and how people have overcome them? Come on, let's have a success story then. What, 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 give us one out of the book of, you know, something to be optimistic about. So about six, seven years ago, China was the world's largest importer of cars. Today, it is the world's largest exporter of cars. It exports more cars than Germany, than Japan, than the US. And all that happened, not in that concentrated period of six years, but over the past two decades. And it's the second chapter in the book. It talks about this guy named Wang Gang, who was uh, the Chinese science minister at the time for a decade between 2009 and 2017. He was an auto engineer by background. He'd grown up in China, but studied and then worked in Germany and saw what kind of lifestyle Germans had. And he wanted that for his people. But he also realized if he would want that, the amount of oil every Chinese person would consume would be 20 times as much as they were consuming in 2000. And there's just not enough oil for that. And so he came back to the government and made the case that we need to build our auto industry to not burn oil. Let's find other fuel sources. Let's find other power sources. And that's when they landed on trying to scale electric cars. And so during his time in office, he got the state to put in $60 billion into creating the entire supply chain for batteries, for electric cars, tens and hundreds of companies. And now we're at that place where the Europeans are worried we're going to get cheap Chinese EVs. But you know what, that, that's really amazing for several reasons. But one reason that immediately occurs to me that it's amazing is because we always think of, of people doing climate change and, and caring about climate change as a very altruistic thing. You know, it's all about the planet and the people as a whole and it's not about me. And you just told us a story where the entire impetus was... I would like a lifestyle and I'd like the people close around me to have a lifestyle, which I can't see us getting if we don't do this thing. Absolutely. And I mean, that's why it's called climate capitalism. I mean, there is a, there is a sense that trying to tackle climate change, you have to undo the economic system. Yeah. And uh, sure, that would be a great ideal world to get into. But we don't actually know what that alternative system would look like and when will we build it and how long that will take. Mm. And so... Over here, the goal is to say, okay, we've got an economic system that runs. How can we fix it to actually solve the problem rather than worsen it? And is there is there stuff in here, when I say in here, I'm pointing at the book, but is there stuff in here as well for kind of SMEs and the smaller businesses about what they can be doing and, and how they can do it? Absolutely. I think the good part of climate change in a way is that we all need to be a part of the solution in some way, whether you are a small business, big business, individual, an individual working in a corporation, all of us have a role to play, big and small. But small, medium enterprises are crucial for the transition. I mean, take the example of cars, right? Mm -hmm. Cars, okay, we talk about the big manufacturers, we talk about the big brands. They rely absolutely on the small and medium enterprise to provide all the thousands of parts that are made that they assemble in cars. Most of the time, they're not making those things. Yeah. And so the small and medium enterprise has to deliver. It's the same case with Unilever, right? One of the world's largest uh, conglomerates that provides all these products that most people don't even know they come from Unilever. 
But most of those ingredients are coming from small and medium enterprises, from farmers, from other uh, uh, people growing things for them. And so absolutely, there's a role for them. The example you gave of uh, China, I mean, China's very good at doing these sort of mass projects, isn't it? And it can just sort of steamroller it through, decide what it's going to do. Is that is that is that going to be important globally that governments have the power just to push stuff through effectively? So China is an extreme example, obviously, because of the politics of the country, right? They can, to some extent, steamroll. There's also a little bit of nuance there. It's not as simple as a dictator saying, this needs to happen, and it happens. Even in China, governments push back other against other governments. There's fights between bureaucrats, there's corruption. But you're right. Governments have to play a bigger and bigger role. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a role where they dictate, but they do have to give more direction. Because at the end of the day, we've kind of let, I mean, the problem as we've landed up with is we've been ignoring the externalities of climate change. We've been ignoring what we are doing when we just freely pollute. And so now we have to take those costs into consideration and somebody has to bring those costs to bear. Mm. And if businesses don't internalize on their own, and they rarely will, voluntarily nobody's going to tax themselves, right? And so you do need to involve governments. They just need to give you direction. It doesn't mean you need to kill competition. It doesn't mean you need to kill markets, but that's why it's climate capitalism. It's a change in the way we do business. Has it been a passion of yours for a long time? I mean, you went in, you did climate at Bloomberg News. Was that just random? You ended up in that department, <laughs> or for to some extent? I mean, I my passion was um, I I've been a nerd all through uh, growing up. I you know like science and math and studied engineering, uh, and I thought I'll become a professor. So I did a PhD in chemistry, but alongside I used to write as a hobby. And um, doing my PhD, I was like, nah. Okay, I thought I was going to be somebody and I don't want to be that person. Now what? So I turned sort of my writing hobby into trying to do journalism. I was like, okay, well, I have some knowledge that I've gained spending years in the lab and studying science. What can I do with it? And at the time it felt to me there was a need and still is a need for storytellers who know the subject. And so I started as a science journalist. And then the climate turn sort of came because of Donald Trump. Okay. Donald Trump was elected in 2017 and around 2016 he was campaigning about this thing called clean coal which is a marketing phrase and uh, <laughs> no shit <laughs> but he continued on the bandwagon for so long my editors were like well what is he talking about and I said well there is actually something real underneath it he doesn't understand it but it's a technology called carbon capture you can actually trap emissions from power plants or industry and then bury them deep underground it's a thing that's been happening for the last three decades. And they were like, wait a second. Can you write more about that, please? And so that's how I it, started. Is that a permanent... I, I, this is just a random curious thing from me because I don't know much about it, but is is that a permanent sort of solution, carbon capture? Is there enough kind of space underground to shove everything we don't want under there forever? Yes, there. it is a permanent solution. Okay. It can be done in the right place at the right uh, time. And there is enough space. I mean... We do live in a big, big planet yes. uh, and uh, there is a lot of space around the world to be able to do stuff like this. So when you do end up putting the carbon dioxide in the ground, it's not like it's a gas sitting in a tank. Carbon dioxide itself is a chemical. Right? You compress it, it becomes a liquid, it goes down, mm-hmm. you put it in these little pores. And in the right places like Iceland, 
there are rocks called basalt rocks where the carbon dioxide reacts with the rock and actually becomes a mineral. So it's trapped as stone. That is cool. Sorry. I did not know that and now my mind is blown. Carry on. Yeah, I mean, but at the moment it's the sort of obsession for carbon, isn't it? You know, it's, it, you wonder at the sacrifice of what else because, I mean, it's it's a bit like um, we had someone talking about, you know, there's a nature crisis also going on and everyone's sort of obsessed with climate. Do you think it's sort of folly of us to sort of just focus on co2 and just be like well we've got to fix it fix it fix it you know oh it's a it's there's a really nice cartoon uh that goes it's like a series of waves and they're bigger and bigger and bigger and they've all got these mm, terrorizing monster mouths the smallest is covid then there's climate change then there's biodiversity then there's nature we are in a world where we are facing all these problems that doesn't mean we should just solve one but there is a very good case to make why we should be focusing on climate change because every other problem becomes worse if we also don't deal with climate change, if we don't deal with carbon dioxide, but also generally greenhouse gases. So another story in the book is uh, this lady named Bryony Worthington. She's now Baroness Bryony Worthington. Mm -hmm. She sits in the House of Lords. And she started as an English major wanting to do conservation, loves nature, wanted to protect animals. And for the first few years she did that, and then one fine day, she had a bunch of scientists and they were like, well, we are working on all this hard stuff, but is it going to matter anyway? Because climate change is coming. And that's when the penny dropped for her. And she's like, I had not thought about it that way. And now she's a climate person. So it's not to say that's the only problem to solve, but every other problem becomes worse if we don't solve it. And what, and what do you feel? I mean, is Bloomberg a good platform to sort of, is it a balanced platform, these sort of large news platforms? I don't know where Bloomberg sits in the universe. I mean, it's very business focused, isn't Correct. it? So it's, it's looking at it through a business lens, right? Yeah, follow the money is probably the best mantra to describe what we do at Bloomberg News. Um, and that's one way to do journalism. And I think it's a pretty valuable way to do journalism um, because at the end of the day, money moves the world. And... If you're able to track it and you're able to find it, where it goes, how it goes, why it moves, it's a good way to understand the world. It's one lens, though. It's not the only lens. But yeah, I, I find it a pretty interesting place to work. Um, there is debate and openness and no subject is off topic. You can cover everything as long as there is a business financial lens to it. And is the, the climate desk, as it were, is it growing, I guess? Yeah, more? so I joined in 2020 and they launched a vertical called Bloomberg Green. And uh, it was about six, seven people at the time. And now it's about 20 people. So it's grown quite a bit. Uh, we are probably the largest climate desk uh, of a newsroom in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and what, it, what do you think the kind of key issues are right now? You know, are people focusing on doing things differently so that, you know, you don't create these emissions in the first place or how to solve them once they're there? If you look at it globally, the biggest challenge is that uh, money to do climate solutions is not being spent in developing countries. So there is a big gap between what we're doing here in Europe or in North America, spending money on renewables and on electric cars and in China too. But in countries like India or Indonesia or South so Africa or Brazil. Like the bricks and things like that. Yes. Those are the places where a lot more investment needs to go in climate solutions. And it's not happening because they don't have the money. And you need these global investors sitting in the US and Europe to invest in those regions. And 
they at this present moment are shirking away. They are like, well, emerging markets too risky. How do you get them to do it? Um, it's a very hard problem. That's that's one like big piece of missing solution uh, that we need to f- figure out. I mean, the closest we get to is this wonky idea that's come out recently. It's called the Just Energy Transition Partnership. And it's basically an idea where rich countries and investors bring money in to try and help countries like Indonesia and South Africa to move away from coal because coal is the dirtiest form of fuel. And if you move to cleaner fuel, A, you get air pollution reduction and you get lower carbon emissions. So the country wins and the planet wins. So you want a win-win solution. Mm. And that's where they're bringing in government money, but also big, large private investors. And it's a messy experiment. Any experiment of this size where you're moving tens of billions of dollars uh, is going to be hard to pull off. But uh, that's probably the best example right now. It's just sort of, we, we're reliant on big business, but, you know, also with things like what's happened with Thames Water, they seem to be... Um, not entirely um, altruistic. Um, yeah, not entirely helping. I mean, it, it, you feel so powerless as a small business. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. Know, and you don't know what to do or what you should be doing in a thing. I mean, how do you see it? Do you see that the big businesses have to lead and with government support, like you're saying? That's one way to do it. There is no way... To around getting big big businesses to change as well because it's not like we're going to dismantle all the big businesses and just have small businesses running the show. And so uh, that's definitely one thing that you need to do. But if you look at the Thames Water problem, I mean, it's also in a very weird market, right? It's operating as a regulated monopoly. And in the regulated monopoly, the regulator needs to be directing you to do the things that the regulator requires you to do. In response, you as a monopoly get to make money. And so if they don't do their job as a regulator and let the company make money without getting the services they require, then whose fault is it? I guess the regulator. Or I guess the regulator hasn't got enough teeth, is it? Or? That's right. I mean, I mean, businesses have a way of sort of trying to corrupt the political system because then they make their life easy. And so there is sort of this rotating door, which we follow closely, Mm. uh, of politicians going into business and vice versa. Uh, You know, there are all these rules around how MPs should, after leaving their jobs, not get into lobbying, not getting into business. And, you know, if they do, what's the fine they have to pay? A few tens of thousands of pounds. Businesses can afford that. And is that the level of fines they would look at? It is, sadly. And and a lot of the time, particularly when MPs are still MPs, the decision is made by somebody who's answerable to the MPs. Yes. Why aren't the regulators stronger? I mean, why, why, why can't they find them heavier? I mean, always fines. You always see a oh, record fine, and you, you think, "Oh, that's nothing to that company." You know, it's true. Most of most of the times, these fines are not very much. Uh, no, the regulators need more teeth, but also regulators are, after all, they are politicians who are elected by people. So people need to realize who are the right politicians we need to pick because it's through that power that those politicians will have the teeth to make hard decisions. Okay, but I mean, you've, you've ma- you managed to find some optimistic stories in what's going out, on, and that's on the basis that, hey, we should be able to sort something out here. If we, you know, you, we can do it in theory. Yeah, and there is no reason to believe we can't. The technology kind of is there. There'll be innovation needed, but we've got the time. We do know what types of policies we need. We, can, we, we have the entrepreneurs. The number of people working on climate solutions is just absolutely bonkers already and growing. So it can be done, but 
uh, it's not being done at the pace we need. And is uh, because Britain was trying to play a sort of you know leading role in this. Is that is that not so true anymore, or is it important we do? If you are going to lead in this fight, you will benefit from it. So look at what China is doing, right? When it went down the electric car route, the battery route, it created an industry for itself that's now a global leader. That's why the Europeans are afraid that cheap Chinese cars are going to come to their shores. So that is the place of the future. That's where the future industries are going to be, and that's where the future jobs are going to be. You can play slow if you would like, but then you lose out in the long term. And the UK, even today, is the leader in cutting emissions globally. This is true among the large economies. Yes, among all the large economies, among all the G20 countries. And it is at a risk and has been for a few years now, not just under Sunak, but under uh, Boris Johnson, under Theresa May, of losing that position Mm. because it's not on track. And so when Sunak comes in and says, oh, we've been so good so far, we can slow down a little bit. That's not, that's just rhetoric, that's politics. And do you think like if you're building an office building now and things that you you should be investing, you know, a large proportion more than you would otherwise to make it super carbon neutral? I mean, this is a sort of, it's, a, it's the same for people's homes, isn't it? It's all very well saying you're going to get a heat pump and things, but the costs are astronomical. So it's a real issue. And that's why you need policy support. That's why you need clarity that there are deadlines, you have to meet them, that there will be support for you if these prices are high and they are in certain cases. I mean, heat pumps, an actual real thing that the government can do is change the price of electricity. So we're currently mm-hmm. paying a fee for renewable electricity as part of the net zero mandate in our electricity bills. We all are, are we? We all are. Oh, wow. so it's a small amount. It comes in our bills. You know, it's not noticeable in that sense because it's been there for many years. But you could very well apply that fee and put it on gas instead of electricity. Yeah, fair point. We've got already such good clean electricity now. We don't need to be charging more on electricity when it's becoming cleaner. You want to charge more on the dirty stuff, which is gas. And that's a rule that can absolutely be changed by the government. Do you feel as part of a larger media outlet that you you can make a difference with your voice? Or do you feel that the sort of independent media outlets, uh, you know more able to sort of get, 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 get. Oh, this is so time-consuming. Spit it out. Come on. This is a game I left long back. So when I wanted to become a professor, I wanted to become a professor because I wanted to change the world. And then I went into academia and I saw what I was doing, which was sitting in a lab for hours and hours and hours, trying to make a dent in the the corner of a scientific paper that only 100 people are going to read. And that might change the world, but in a way that nobody will notice. Yeah. Um, And so I kind of decided at that time, there's very little an individual has the power to controllably change the world. You know, the people who get to change the world often are quite lucky to be in the place and the time to do it. The best I can do is the effort I can put into whatever work I'm doing. So... It's a little bit of a Zen Cohen uh, type of situation, but I've made peace with the fact that I don't know if I'll change the world. I'm just going to try my best to tell the best stories I can. Okay, so an optimistic book or some stories, we, we, we can do it. We need the governmental help. I mean, is there anything tangible right now that a small or medium-sized business should be doing or could do? The quickest one would be to deploy renewable energy. So a lot of renewable energy that you can build on your sort of warehouse, your office is affordable, is cheap, actually will cut bills. 
and makes a big difference. The second, if you're in sort of the colder regions as the UK, um, is to insulate your office, have an office that has good air circulation, is more efficient at managing heat because the largest energy consumption for buildings is heat uh, here in the UK. About 30% of all our emissions from the entire year come from sort of wintertime heating. So, wow. so you could do a lot just managing those two things. Try and get people to turn the lights off too. That's always the lights are totally fine now. Really, really, like LEDs are so e- efficient. Oh, we can leave the lights on. You can leave the lights, leave the lights on. on. Totally oh, fantastic! Fine. But I mean, it's only going to get worse as as we all now want air conditioning as well as heating in the winter. So we're kind of doubling up. On, we are on that electricity use. Absolutely. I mean, air conditioning use is growing everywhere. When I grew up in India, in Nasik especially, the weather was fantastic. We never needed air conditioning. But for the last five years, my parents have been complaining and eventually they got an air conditioner. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, nowadays, most people in India probably have one, wouldn't they really? Not really. I mean, it's, uh, India is still a pretty poor country. So, you know, your average uh, income is two and a half thousand dollars a year. A year, that's the average income in India. Wow. My goodness. What's your long-term goal for what you're doing? It's one of those things, again, I've sort of kind of given up on the long-term plan. You know, when I gave up on being a professor, I was like, I had a long-term plan. I had a five-year plan, I had a 10-year plan, and I was going to do this. And then I was like, wait a second, I don't really control what's happening. So to me, just being able to tell good stories and do good journalism in the long-term, that sounds like a good plan. That's a good plan. Nice. How old are you? 36. You can't oh. ask people that. You can. <laughs> <laughs> the news industry does seem in a bit of a sort of crazy state. But, you know, is Bloomberg in a nice, healthy place or are you sort of, you know? Bloomberg's been that way, a nice place to work, A, because uh, it has a business model that funds news in a a sustainable way because it provides all these services to financial institutions that require that information and do pay the money for that information. So Bloomberg is among the rare places which are doing okay. New York Times is probably the other one. FT, is that doing Financial okay? Times is doing all right. Mm. Uh, so the business publications, Wall Street Journal is doing fairly okay. The business publications tend to do okay. It's kind of ironic because they're, they're all about money, but in a weird way, they're, they're sort of some of the most balanced out there at the moment. You know what I mean? In terms of they're just trying to fact report, you know, as opposed to sort of sensationalize so much. If you want to make money, you need to understand reality. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well put. Yeah. yeah, but also I think you're right, you know, because I keep banging on about it really because it, it was such a great day. I went to the Financial Times summer. Oh, yeah, the festival. Yeah, festival. And it was just great, but it wasn't just a, you know, a few of the talks had business slants Mm -hmm. and they were really interesting, but there were talks on all kinds of crazy shit. I mean, not because it was very measured and very thought-provoking and really interesting, but, you know, they came across as very serious and thoughtful journalists. And I think you get the same from Bloomberg or any of those kind of business kind of centric. It's not tittle-tattle. You know, what Harry and Meghan's doing is not really relevant for business. What has been your biggest, would you say, your biggest failure so far? Was there something that happened that you really wish hadn't? I mean, I wouldn't study engineering. I studied engineering. God, no. There's no women. Uh, <laughs> it was, you know, did you study engineering in uh, India? India, yes. Oh, what, uh, what is it called? It's, I, it's uh, called the Institute of Chemical Technology. It's in Mumbai. But I wouldn't study engineering because... You did chemical engineering. Chemical engineering too. Yeah. 
But I suppose it's also it's also narrowing your interest very, very early. Very early. That's the problem I had. In India, there's so much competition, just yeah. so many of us, that you have to kind of hyper-specialize as you grow up. Uh, mm. And I feel like that's one lost opportunity in life uh, where I had to hyper-specialize because that's you what everybody did. You can still expand. Well, that's what I'm doing now as a yeah. journalist. I learn on the job. <laughs> Do you, I mean, people in India work crazy hours. You know, for all, all the Indians I work with, they always answer their phone, you know, constantly messaging you constantly. Is it's, that, a, it's a hustle being being in India. It's a, it's a hustle. You've got to make it work for you. And if that means working long hours, you have to. Out of interest, do you, do you translate that here? Do you find you still work longer than your London colleagues? Yes, I, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's just survival instinct. I mean, it's to some extent, it's not just being Indian. It's also being an immigrant. Yeah. Um, you know, you come to a country, you don't know the culture. So what do you do? You turn around and you do the best you can at the work that you can do. And so... To make all the locals look bad. <laughs> so everyone hates you. Yeah. How, how long have you been here? It's been 15 years now. Okay. So you've, you know, you should be pretty au fait with, <laughs> with how relaxed we all are. Um, you don't believe in work-life balance? No, I mean, I like work-life balance. I mean, it's necessary because mm. you can't work your way through doing good work. Your brain only can function for so long. So you need to be able to take the breaks and be able to give yourself the room to be able to think and do the hard work. I mean, especially the kind of work I do is all mental work. Uh, you know, I'm speaking to people, I'm trying to connect the dots. And so, no, my my sort of work-life balance is exercise. I was going to say, what do you do for fun? But exercise is not fun. Oh, I thought so too. And then three years ago, I started exercising and it's fun. And I can't believe it. I used to laugh at people who used to go for runs. I'd be like, what are you doing? Why do you run <laughs> looking at the same track for yeah. two hours? And now I'm, what, I'm that are you person. you sure it's not fun? It's just a fun to have the buzz afterwards, isn't it? it but there is the buzz during... Is there? Yes. I've never, I had a friend who was a, um, she was actually a classics professor at a university, but she was also a fitness instructor. Mm -hmm. And she was always like, oh, the endorphins are amazing. You'll enjoy it so much. And I'm like, no, I just exercise for an hour and then I feel tired and ill. Yeah. I mean, I don't exactly get it. what I used to say. Like, I cannot, like, every time I talk about this, I'm like, I can't believe I'm that person now. What, what changed? Um, I started start doing it because I'd gained a little bit of weight uh, and it was pretty apparent. And <laughs> then I was like, well, what can I do? Maybe I should start running. And then I, then it just got addictive. It's, it's, it is addictive. It's like, addictive, it's addictive. Yeah. And it's that, the fact that it's addictive is absolutely crazy to me. You should so totally start exercising. I do exercise. Do you? <laughs> yes. Why do I say that to I don't me? know. I just, because it feels like it would fit with your personality quite well. So, um, any great advice you've ever been given? Negotiate a salary. Negotiate a salary. Yeah. I didn't do that for the first three jobs. What, all the time or? Whenever you change a job, whenever, every time you have a raise, negotiate your salary. Do you think like you should bullshit, what, people always bullshit what they were earning. What are you currently on? You sort of, you know, you're quite, people are often, quite often <laughs> I'm surprised that. by that because I always assume that if I, if I haggle, which is kind of another word for yeah. negotiate, that you're just going to be seen as difficult. You are. The Indians just love to do it, but, you know, the English hate it. Well, we haggle for paying money. Yes, that's a, there's a lot of haggling in the market. But when it comes to salary, I was just grateful somebody thought I could write. And so I, if somebody's giving me a job to write, I'm like, great, thank you for paying me to do something I like. Whereas it's like, because I'm worth it, you should be paying me more. Yes. 
Is that was that would be your approach? Would it just straight up? I think you should pay me more. Yes, I will try and understand the market, and if I'm paying, I'm being paid under the market. I would ask for what the market rate is. It's really hard to work out market rates, though. You, you people say you can, but it's actually these really days, difficult. at least in my generation that I've seen, people are pretty transparent about talking about salaries. I mean, if companies always tell their staff they're not allowed to talk about salary, and mm-hmm. staff always talk about salary. There's yeah. no two ways about it. Yeah. How many people in your building in Bloomberg? Are you in that the big fancy Bloomberg building? Yeah, it's oh, like nice. five thousand people. It's a lovely oh, wow. building. Yeah. Are they still giving away all the free food? Yes. Wow. Okay. That's a selling point. So you wouldn't move to BBC News then as well. <laughs> and now a quick word from our sponsor. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark. Straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. You can find us at oriclark.com. What do you think is bullshit in your industry and why? I think social media is yeah. bullshit. It's yeah. sort of like you have to be on it because everybody else is on it. And Are you on kind of like all social media feeds? I have to be. Feeds, There's just no way around it. I have to. I really agree with the like, it, it's like it's it's poison, but you have to be on it. It's yeah. Sort of because otherwise if you're not on it, no one knows what you're doing. Yeah. And it's problem with that there is no way to do it healthily. You kind of have to be on it and in it. All or nothing. It's yeah. Does anyone love social media? I mean, you know, because I get the feeling certainly people who have to produce stuff for social media that actually no one actually really likes it, basically, underneath it. I really love social media. Well, no, you're I like. Con- I really love you- X. Oh my God, you said it. Wow. I know, I did say it. You've moved on. I have moved on. I've just got to get get over it. Because, I I mean, I'm on Blue Sky and I'm trying to use Blue Sky and I'm trying to do that whole thing. But I just love Twitter. Blue Sky is the sort of new competitor. Yeah, I mean, I love Twitter. I I love the curated, like, people that I follow. I love them all. But don't you think it's lost its magic? There was a moment when Twitter was good and now it's sort of like because of this people splitting still, their time I mean, I into other places. I still enjoy it. Yeah, and I, but I, you know, and everybody says oh, it's really poisonous and I don't see that purely because I'm just a small person who doesn't really have any followers. Who, it's very you know, funny, but I do note that a lot of the time when it's funny is someone is getting proper lambasted. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> someone has posted something on social media and then it's hilarious, everyone. Then you're like, ha ha, but there's actually someone there who's getting absolutely slammed. And that must be a horrible experience. No, but sometimes, I mean, this morning I couldn't stop laughing and it's not even that funny, but it was a headline about £77,000 to tailor, i.e. design, Swift nesting sites. Oh, right. Like Swift, oh, I see. the birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And somebody, <laughs> and the headline was like, Leicestershire Council gives 77,000 to Taylor Swift nesting sites. And somebody had tweeted, I sort of assume she stayed in hotels. And I literally couldn't stop laughing for yeah, about yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, it's like just moments like that, you're like. Yeah, in my world, it's more like, it's more disinformation. It's sort of like, Twisting the facts, it's making up stuff, it's mm. doing climate denialism, it's taking good stuff and cherry picking and making bad stuff out of it. And as a as a journalist where you've got a job that requires you to, to sort of seek out real stuff. Yes. As opposed to fake news, I can imagine that that's really hard. You know, like... We need more public education, we need more critical thinking, we need people to be able to understand the complex world we are in. But what social media ends up doing is oversimplifying 
dumbing it down to an extent where it becomes absurd. And then you're able to just twist the words as you would like to, you know, feed your own interests. And in, it's also, and it feels like that whole social media thing where you can say what you like and just make shit up is now bleeding over into mainstream media, right? I mean, media in a way is actually a reflection of society, uh, right? We kind of get the media we deserve. We deserve. It's the politicians. It's the, it's the same situation, right? Like the media is making its money off of you, right? The audience. And if the audience wants a certain thing, that's what the media will give you. So it is a sad situation that that's true if it's bleeding into media as much. And yes, I mean, GB News is sort of like the Fox News coming from yeah. America to the UK, right? We're a country of Daily Mail readers. Uh, we talked a bit about uh, regulators. I, ha- I have to ask with my accounting hat on is, you know, are you aware of the sort of there's a new audit standard and stuff? Do you think, do you think there's so much, you know, greenwashing and everything, mm-hmm. but do you think, you know, this sort of pushing companies to to disclose and stuff is having an effect or... Oh, we know it's having an effect. Okay. Um, so we've seen when we write stories about calling companies out on their greenwashing, they get careful the next time around. How do you mean they get careful? They hide it better or Either they... they're hiding it better or we've also seen them stopping doing the bad thing. You would call, that would be part of your job to try and identify people yes. doing greenwashing. And it's, it's rife, isn't it? Oh, very easy because it's so easy to make up the numbers and it's so easy to sell an idea, but to test it is hard. And so that's our job. And there's so much of it that we get to it slowly through company by company. So it's very research-led, your journalism. Yes, very much. It's like it, it, just trying to get the facts and look at, read the data. Mm-hmm. You're all scientists then, basically. <laughs> no, but facility with, with numbers is useful. Yeah, okay. But also, it's a great, that's a great defense of why reporting stuff, like doing the financial reporting, is actually useful. Yeah. Like you're sort of sitting there saying, oh my God, there's so many more rules on audits and it's a pain in the butt for us to have to... No, I think it's probably good, the new, the new audit those. thing, but audits are a pain yeah. for sure. <laughs> yes. you, know? you know, and the companies have to produce a load more stuff than they had to do before and that's a pain for them. But there's clearly method in the madness. Of course. And bureaucracy, I mean, too much regulation will also bog businesses down. There is That is also a true correct line. But you do need regulations, good regulations. And I guess you're in a profession and we're in a profession. So there is still a profession as a journalism with integrity and a duty to get it right and stuff. You know, again, being driven by you're writing for a publication that has to get it right because people are making financial decisions, you know, and accuracy is everything. And I've been a journalist 10 years of my life and I've been fortunate to be surrounded by really good journalists all through that. I've not been at Bloomberg for all that period, but all the places I've worked at, I've only found honest people wanting to do the hard work at pretty low salaries because they believe in the service that journalism provides. And again, that may be a bubble, right? Every one of us lives in a bubble, but it's been a big enough bubble that I have learned from them and tried to apply that craft. Do you think journalists should be paid more? 100%. It's like teachers should be paid more, nurses should be paid more. They are providing a service to society that's not compensated to the right level. So now we're going to do a 10-second quick-fire round. Yeah. Um, we're going to ask you a list of questions and you just quick, quick answers, please. Uh, up to 10 seconds. D, cue the music. Akshat, are you ready? I am ready. Very good. What was your first job? Uh, putting out leaflets for a marketing thing. In India? No, here at Oxford. Oh, very good. What was your worst job? 
putting out leaflets. Yeah. <laughs> I really, that's the first time ever that we've had the same first job and worst Should job. Be. And I love that. Yeah. Uh, what was your favourite subject at school? Maths. Yes. Um, not chemistry. Um, what's your special skill? Uh, being able to nap at any point in time. Nap. Oh, that's a great skill. Anywhere, anytime. Could you do it now, do you think? Yeah, you'd have to give, give me my headphones. Um, yeah, that's it. I just wow. need headphones. Why, you put music on, do yeah. you? Oh, what sort of music? It's Max Richter, piano. Okay, and that just knocks you out, yeah. does it? It's like so a So if tip. they play that in public, it's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> You're driving a vehicle. Narcolepsy. Yeah. Um, what did you want to be when you grew up? The earliest memory of this is being wanting to be a pilot. Wow. Uh, any any a jet pilot or like just a, any pilot. airline pilot? I, I did not fly till I was 15, but I wanted to be one when I was three years old. I was like, wow, you can fly. Isn't that the most damaging thing for the environment, though? It is. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you're ambitious. I didn't know that climate change existed. It's trying I was to make you feel older. guilty. Uh, what did your parents want you to be? An engineer. Did they? <laughs> What's your go to karaoke song? It's a very embarrassing one. It's Barbie Girl by Aqua. Okay. Barbie Girl. Yeah. I'm then, your Barbie Girl. Yeah. And I'll always do it with somebody. And the the Ken part in there are so little. Doesn't he just go, come on, Barbie, let's go party? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, there's, there is some lines <laughs> for Ken. I mean, I'm embarrassed that I know that. I haven't, I haven't seen the Barbie <laughs> film, but everyone says it's brilliant. Have you seen the Barbie film? It's no. amazing. Yeah, but it's okay, really good. Um, office dogs. <laughs> Business or bullshit? Business. Oh, very good. What's your vice? Uh, video games. Ah, uh, is it? I get obsessed. What kind of, like, story, story. kind of driven Mostly narrative, games? but also sometimes sort of arcade and I want to beat a high score. Video games, are it's so easy. Anything we should be listening to, watching? Mm-hmm. Reading, yes. Apart from climate capitalism, um, if you want to do more of understanding where we are in the world uh, with uh, climate solutions, there's a book called Bottled Lightning, which is about batteries and how they came to be, and I oh, really wow, found cool. it fascinating. Another one, just from a work-life balance perspective, is a book called Four Thousand Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Uh, really nice uh, book is that about how many weeks you have to live. Is it? That's yeah. that's right, and it's a it's kind of an anti productivity book. So I'm not selling it very well, but it's actually a productivity book, which is to say it's a good book. Read it. Okay. What well, it's a productivity book that makes you not productive? You mean no? Not? It's the other way around. It's an it's a book about a philosophical rant on why productivity as a concept that we have understood is wrong. Okay. And to break out from that concept and be actually productive, have to do, do things very differently than oh, we've wow. been taught to with all these life hacks and these efficiency mm. things that we come up with. It's a good book. Wow. I like a philosophical rant. That's yeah. What was it called? 4,000 4, 4, weeks. weeks. Yeah. That doesn't feel like very many. No, it's that's why not. they do it like that. Exactly. It isn't very long. I'm now scared. I know. And... Um, Chris Backham's latest documentary on Channel 4. Oh, the legend Chris Backham, who I grew up with, the, the nature guy. Is it time to break the law? Is it time to break the law? It's on Channel 4, you can watch it online. Okay, wow. What's it about? It's about whether being an activist is something you should... It's now so serious that it's something you should consider. Not just that. He is an activist. He says that from start. He says 
is it now that activists need to break, break the, the law, law to be able to make change happen? Yeah, I guess to some extent they always have to. Okay, so this is where we give you 30 seconds to pitch whatever you'd like. Away you go. Well, I hope people will read Climate Capitalism and all the stories of very interesting people uh, who are solving some of the problems that we really do need to solve and may others learn from them. Brilliant. Fantastic. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you, Akshat. Thank you, Pippa. Thank you, Dee. We'll be back with our quiz, Business or Bullshit, on Friday. Until then, it's ciao.